Please be advised, the following program may contain explicit language. From the kitchen table, this is Gate Close Panic. Happy Sunday evening. I was just listening to that language warning and laughing because I asked a whole bunch of people to make those for me back when I started the podcast. And that one that I have on the episode today was done by my friend Will. Everybody else sort of did a joke one and he just did a deeply sincere 1990s ABC radio version, which is why it's my favourite. I've been thinking a lot lately about direction those structuring forces that help propel us forward, give us a sense of meaning and of achievement. Career is, of course, a central force in our sense of direction. So many of the choices I've made over the last 10 years have been either explicitly or implicitly about work. As I become more interested in uncoupling my identity from a job, I'm starting to look at what it is about work that makes it such a tempting catch-all for potential satisfaction and to see if I can find those things elsewhere so that I'm not reliant on a job to fill those gaps in myself. Listening back to my conversation with today's guest, Maddie Parry, I found it so easy to hear in what she was saying the broader themes that make her work satisfying for her. A forum for strong, meaningful communication, a sense of connection to a large-scale conversation, and a means to feel out her boundaries and learn her strengths. Toward the end of the conversation, Maddie makes a comment about learning to work less and finding she still creates something equally strong. Listening to her story, there's a clear sense of someone who has grown from a place of needing to pour themselves utterly into every project to somebody who's confident in their strengths and understands that letting work cannibalize your entire life doesn't always mean a better result. I think a lot of us are renegotiating our relationship with work and becoming more critical about how it impacts our sense of identity. And I think Maddie's arrival at a place of knowing her worth and her strengths aren't tied to bleeding herself dry for work, while still consciously pursuing work which nourishes her, is something to strive for. This episode was recorded late last year. Take care, stay safe, get vaxxed. My name is Madeline Parry, and I am a storyteller, but I would say I, I primarily work in film and television. Nice. Okay, cool. So, um, like I said, just starting wherever feels relevant to you, when did you first start to think about work? I'm not sure when I started to think about it, but the way I've always, uh, the story I have for myself is that I got my first two jobs on the same day. So I was in uh, year um, 10 Mm. or 11. Oof. Year 11? Year 10. Uh, I was in year 10. I don't know. (laughs) obviously but I um I wanted to go back to visit my friends in the UK we'd lived in the UK um when I was 14 to 15 for a year Mm -hmm. and I walked down Goodwood Road and put my resume in at the IGA Mm -hmm. food land there and also at a um health food store called the Waste Not Want Not Shop um which sold clothes and gifts and soaps and and food and everything was very eco Mm -hmm. and I got both of them so they were a few doors down from each other and outside of school I would work um, you know a really exhausting checkout job and a very very slow quiet um, gift shop job and I felt like they complemented each other well Mm because the gift shop was quite uh, not so stimulating Um, I used to like test myself for how many 
soaps I could memorize, you know, going out the back. <laughs> um, uh, which I like, I think really has helped my short term memory. Like, yeah. I like to think I have a good short term memory <laughs> from my soap testing and training. Um, and then, you know, and, and I did have to quit the um, supermarket after a year because I was really starting to dislike the customers. Yeah. Um, but one funny story, I don't know if it's funny, from when I was there was I, di- I somehow missed the memo that it's rude to ask people who they vote for. And uh, the voting was across the road at the primary school in Goodwood. And so on the day that it was an election, and I would have been 16, I think, I just asked every single person I served who they voted for. Um, and it was great. Yeah, <laughs> people were just, a lot of people said I vote for who my parents vote for. Yeah. Which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I believe that, actually, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, okay, so what was school like for you? Um, school for me was... Uh, look, I really disliked primary school, but I loved high school. Mm. I think I found primary school to be a bit of, you know, a, a prison. Mm. Um, and we had a really tough teacher. My class had a teacher for three years from reception to year two who was a bit of a mistrunchful. Oh. Um, so that probably didn't help, but mm. I had one best friend and I think we were the quirky duo. I was the one kid who always had her hand up in class. Mm. Um, and did get teased for being a bit of a teacher's pet at one point in primary school but that was just because I was being nice to a teacher that everyone else was mean to and I was just like don't be so mean to her um and then um in high school uh I really I think I appreciated the range of extracurricular activities and the subjects and the ability to kind of move faster and grow yeah but essentially I was um a little bit of a drama kid but that faded away um, and I was a, a super nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you sort of enjoy it socially as well as academically? I always feel very lucky that I had a good group of friends mm. who aren't all, you know, a big unit still now, mm-hmm. but I had really genuine connections with say like six yeah. or seven different people who were part of a group. Um, and they just felt like real real friendships Mm, so that was always good but I also at lunchtime even though I had this rooted connection with a good group of friends Mm. I would um go around and try and kind of check in with everybody in the schoolyard Mm -hmm. and be friends with all the different groups Mm. um which I think probably has something to do you know, to say about my career in documentary mm. that I was going and infiltrating the different subcultures in the in the, in the um, schoolyard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I literally, you know, would try in a lunchtime occasionally to like make it around and have like a genuine hangout and connection with like six or seven different groups, which wow. I think is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder what your kind of um what the culture was growing up at home for you around work and what was it kind of expected of you or you felt was expected of you? My parents both worked really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've reflected on that as I've grown up that they, um, mum did a lot of the caring as well. Dad's a um, specialist, in, he's a psychiatrist yeah. in the public health system, mm-hmm. which is, you know, generally underfunded and quite stressful yeah so he was always quite exhausted um but he also worked very hard and Mm. he could have made choices to go into private practice earn more money and work less but he didn't Mm. because I think there was a very big sense of service Mm -hmm. um 
uh, I don't can't speak to where my parents are at now, but when they got married, they were kind of hippie Christians mm-hmm. with a real sense of um, service to community, I think. Yeah. Um, and so mum was a teacher, and as I grew up, she was a dance and drama teacher mm-hmm. um, with English, a um, bit of religion too, mm-hmm. and um, she was a teacher at my school. Mm. So I actually got to see my mum at work, and she was a teacher at my high school. When I got there in year six, I walked around and all these older kids came up to me and high-fived me being like, you're Miss Parry's daughter. And I was like, cool, I had social cachet thanks to my mum, who's like (laughs) the short, you know, colourful pant-wearing drama teacher who ran breakdance classes at lunchtime and got backspin. So, um, So I got to see her at work and she was very generally well loved you Mm. know um one or two kids I think she had run-ins with but like everyone loves Miss Parry who she's now Miss Hasiotis but um yeah so that's kind of it you know they they worked a lot mum did a lot of extra above and beyond as well as kind of running the house yeah yeah um and what did you feel their hopes were for you they both had pressure, I think, from their parents to do a particular thing. Mum's right. got immigrant Greek parents, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of pressure on her to, you know, get the good marks and be a doctor, solicitor, or what's the other one? Engineer, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Dad's dad was a doctor, mm-hmm. and I think all well, Dad would have liked to have been a archaeologist or, you know, a historian. Yeah. Um, but he became a doctor because mm-hmm. he's the eldest, and his dad was a doctor. So they both. Um, you know, sent us to a Catholic school rather than a private school, though mm. I think Dad probably could have afforded it, mm. um, and wanted us to kind of just make our own path. Mm-hmm. So when I did end up leaving university after like only a year and a half part time, mm. they were nervous and they like subtly suggested maybe I go back, but they also were very wedded to you should do what you want. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what were what were your plans when you were first sort of finishing up with school, and what did you end up doing? Um, so I was I I, I I topped my school with my marks, which is great because I did art and drama, and normally you get scaled down for that. So I don't know why it happened, mm. but I got great marks. Um, you know, I had you know studied incredibly hard for those exams, and and I had a one of those I was thinking about this the other day I had a a minor depression when when high school finished because I had such a clear sense of purpose and very structured approach to the whole thing Mm. um so I decided in my gap year because we'd lived overseas when I was a teenager for for a bit Mm. um I didn't need to go off and and travel immediately um and I also knew I wouldn't really do so well just partying for a year I really wanted to do something I think the year overseas when I was 14 15 which was in North Wales Mm -hmm. which is a fairly cold wet and economically depressed part of the state Mm -hmm. beautiful for holidays but like if you're a teenager who can't drive it's it's a pretty um, limiting place yeah so when I came back from there um, I was 15 and then I got those two jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, only half my family came back at first. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so this is when I was 15, I got those first two jobs. Um, 
my mum and my little brother were down in Mildinga mm. and the rest of my family was still overseas for another six months. Mm. And I, um, you know, got two, two jobs, started studying an extra subject of dance in the city. Yeah. And so I would stay different nights with um, my auntie, or two different aunties and a friend. Yeah. And so my mum wouldn't necessarily know where I was each night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just kind of really super independent. Yeah. So at 15, 16, I started like, I felt like a year of my life had been stolen from me being in North Wales. Mm. Um, just so frustrated by the lack of freedom of movement, you know, that there was so little for kids to do there, mm. that I just like dove straight into, um, uh, yeah, independence, I suppose, mm. um, and working for myself and saving heaps from that like minimum wage. So I'm saying all of that, I think, because um, by the time I finished high school, I'd already kind of exercised a bunch of independence. Mm. And I think still flowing on from that year as a teenager overseas, I wanted to do something. Like, I wanted to make something. Mm. Um, I wanted to, like, sink my teeth into something. I didn't need to, like, escape school and party. I felt like I'd, I'd been fly twirling in town and doing capoeira for a short period of time and going to university parties when I was like 16 and 17. Mm. Going to underage gigs and not drinking because I didn't want to get the publicans or the bar owners in trouble. Bless! (laughs) (laughs) So like, I'd kind of already been out a lot, even though I had been responsible. Um, So I didn't like feel like I needed to do that. So... The, what I did want to do was do something and I told myself for a gap year I would um, just get into the film industry mm-hmm. I was in a bit of denial about it um, my mum's a teacher, my dad's a doctor mm. I tend to say the only person I knew who ran their own business was my friend's dad who was a carpet cleaner and I don't think he particularly enjoyed it so I didn't know anyone any adults in my life who were you know, entrepreneurs or business owners or let alone creative business owners, mm. except, you know, the carpet cleaning dad that I was aware of. So I didn't have many examples for how to create a career or work as a, you know, freelancing, independent creative. So, um, yeah, I told myself that I was just for a gap year going to be doing film. Mm-hmm. And I volunteered. Mm. Um I ripped tickets at the film festival. Mm. I volunteered at the documentary conference. A woman there needed some transcribing done. I transcribed for her. Then I went expenses paid to pitch a project with her to ABC and SBS in Sydney Mm. and Melbourne. Um, Came back to Adelaide. Wasn't technically allowed to volunteer on like the student films, but found an independent feature film to work on. And the woman who was producing that then got me a job the following year at the ABC as an IV coordinator two days a week, nice. which is really well paid compared to what I've been doing. Yeah, I bet. And so I'd started a law and science double degree mm-hmm. um, with the idea to eventually be a communicator between scientists, policymakers, and the public mm-hmm. after that six-year double degree. Mm-hmm. But second, semest- uh, second semester in, um, I'd done like a video about property law and a... a presentation to the class about climatology and in both places I just got great feedback that I was a really wonderful communicator Mm. and I didn't really feel like I fit with the culture of of research science or of law and I was really like communication is my thing Mm. 
I've got this job two days a week at the ABC through networking um, that will allow me to be able to live and live out of home. Mm. And two days a week work at the ABC, three days a a week, I'll give this film thing a try. So eventually four years out of high school, I made my first short film Mm -hmm. um, with some government finance. Uh, and those four years I had spent, yeah, one and a half of them part-time at uni doing law and science, mm. but the rest of the time kind of like sweating nervously uh, whilst interviewing pigeon fanciers for a documentary that I was starting about pigeon racing um, and, and homing pigeons and then um, Googling things late at night, like YouTubing how to do stuff. And I'd never been a computer person, Mm. but I, you know, discovered that being a computer person actually doesn't mean you know anything anyone else doesn't know. It just means that you Google stuff and you're kind of creative. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, this is just a fun problem solving thing. So um, I I really pushed myself uh, out of my comfort zone a lot. and then eventually had something I felt passionate enough to say and made a, a short documentary about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I definitely didn't, um, I was in denial for a while about going into film. Like I thought it was just a gap year activity. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What was it about it that you think you wanted to deny? I think that I didn't know how to turn that into a job. Yeah. And although my parents had always said, do whatever you want, mm-hmm. um, a few years once I'd left uni mm. and they kind of said, oh, you know, maybe you should go back, which was, is the fact that they said that meant that they were nervous. Yeah. Um, after that, I was trying to decide who to work with or what project to work on or how to navigate something in this world of, of you know, being your own self-directed creator of your own work yeah. and career. And I was trying to talk to my mum about it, as you do. I would have been 20, maybe 19, 20. Mm. Um, And she just turned to me at one point and said, Maddie, I can't help you. Mm. I went from high school to university to a job. I just don't understand the choices that you have to make. Um, And I really appreciate her having the self-awareness to be able to say that so clearly. Mm. But um, uh, that's... I think probably part of what the denial was was yeah. I just didn't have many examples mm-hmm. and I found some of those in those four years I found people who you know had partners and kids and houses and lives mm-hmm. and worked in film and television mm-hmm. and was it with the sort of creation of that documentary that you started to sort of earnestly identify with that as a career path I think that in in deciding to do it um, you know I well what happened was um, two years after leaving high school, uh, so after that gap year, yeah. when I went to uni, I then invested in camera, tripod, all the money I earned serving chips, part-time job, mm-hmm. uh, serving chips and uh, Asian food in the food court at Flinders. Um, I spent all of it on expensive camera gear, mm-hmm. you know, laptop, tripod, camera, microphones, um, and I knew what I was doing. Mm. Um, and I was kind of entertaining three futures at that point. One as a scientist, one as a lawyer, one as a filmmaker, maybe four, one as this kind of communicator who has these backgrounds. 
And when I got offered the job at the ABC two days a week, I was just exhausted from entertaining so many futures mm-hmm. that I um, that I was like, I'm going to take the high risk one first. So it was when I left university that I committed to, I'm going to try this. Yeah. Um, and then when I made the film, which would have been a couple of years later, maybe a year and a half later, after that, I, um, I had to really tell myself that I was a filmmaker in order, I think, to make it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that thing of you... Some of those first lessons I learned in that period were to say yes just before you're ready. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you know, by the time you know all the answers, that's too late, you know? And, and, and that was through doing a lot of volunteering mm-hmm. and working with people. I wasn't in a university institution where there were, like, teachers and students. I was out on the job working with more experienced people who were figuring it out and problem solving as they went. Mm. And that was really eye-opening to me. That that's the point that you need to be at in order to create brilliant stuff mm. is you need to be at the point that you can back yourself to problem solve. Yeah. So um, that's something that I learned. And I think also that... But taking it the next step and saying, I'm a filmmaker. I remember, you know, when they ask you your occupation on, you know, those forms when you fly. Yeah cross borders you know the whole dance around writing different things until eventually writing like director like can I write that um I think (laughs) part of that was um the process of of making that first film and I barely watched any other film or tv in the lead up to making that first shot documentary because I think it was a real confidence building exercise for me that I wanted to of course I'd had influences in my life up until that point but I wanted to tackle that problem and see what solution I came up with so that I could know for myself that I can do this. Yeah. So I remember not watching many, many things. Mm. Did you feel that the result of that was a sort of um, clear and decisive voice for yourself? Uh, having made the short film? Yeah. Yeah, look, it was huge because I went from somebody who said, I have ideas, like, I think I can do this, to look what I've done. Yeah. And that's just, that is an absolute world of difference to anybody in the industry Mm. because you know in this field people can only back you if you lower all of the risks for them Mm. and a way to lower the risks of them giving you money or time is to prove to them that you can make something good yeah you know so you can tell somebody I'm great or you can show them a short film you made and the second thing is what will work and so yeah. that that meant I was getting really positive feedback after that yeah um yeah did it open up opportunities for you well I spent the whole next year applying for things mm-hmm. um and you know making that well making that film mm-hmm. just in terms of work I would wake up at 4am because my most creative time unfortunately is like between four and nine and I, not, I do not wake up at that time now. But this morning, I must have been in a good mood because I woke up at 5.30 really bright and wrote a bunch of things in my notes on my phone. Yeah. But that is when I have great clarity. So I woke up at that time and wrote the script for the first short documentary, you know, every morning. I, the number of versions of drafts was huge. So I had done a lot of work on it. Mm. And I've forgotten your question. Did it open um, doors for you? Yeah, it. Um, I think I was just saying, like, I, I, yes, yes, but not like that. Not, 
I didn't just get like a path laid out for me. I yep. had to spend a whole next year applying for grants mm-hmm. and, you know, um, applying for money to make something bigger. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I made other small things. I would have done small like corporate video jobs right. and maybe made something, a few creative things. Mm. But um, I was, you know, trying to get something on television. My mm-hmm. goal was to make a TV series within 10 years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and that happened within five, which was great. And I'm still goal setting after that. So, oh, that was quick. Yeah. Um, so um, the, the doors were opened, mm. but it was still a lot of work, basically. What came next for you? Next came making uh, a half-hour documentary for mm-hmm. the ABC mm-hmm. through an initiative called Opening Shot, which was the first time uh, or, you know, emerging documentary makers. Yeah. And the first short film I made was called Murder Mouth. It was about killing my own food for the first time. So I picked a broccoli. I went fishing with my uncle. I slaughtered a chicken with my great-grandmother and made the traditional Greek chicken soup we always had growing up. Mm. And I went to a farmer. There was a farmer there to show me how to slaughter a lamb to serve to my friends. And the idea was if I couldn't kill it, I wouldn't eat it. A lot of my friends were vegetarian or turning vegetarian. I'd grown up eating meat. And I just felt like a very suburban mm. girl who didn't really know what, what it was about. So it was a very profound experience for me mm. to, you know, I did slaughter the lamb, the chicken, the fish and the broccoli. Um, but I was aware that uh, the meat that I get isn't killed in a one-on-one you know, exchange in yeah. a field, it's in a factory. Mm. So I went to do a documentary series in a meatworks mm-hmm. and worked in one for six weeks, I think. Um, and that was, you know, the first short film, like I said, I, I scripted and scripted it beforehand. Yeah. Um, this one, I was working with a producer. I was collaborating with bigger teams. I was hiring more people, um, had... Um, you know, we hired a, an older, more experienced shooter who turned out to not be the right guy for the job. And mm-hmm. I really admire him for after a week or I don't, I don't even know if it was a week. He said, look, I'm not the right person for this job. Yeah. Um, which I think me and the producer were not quite experienced enough to be able to make such a big call as that. Right. So we had someone else come in who was, you know, perfect for it. Mm-hmm. Shooting observational documentary that has to be turned into a half hour TV series is like a very fine dance yeah. between observational and making sure you capture the story. Um, so, um, yeah, so we had a shooter called Mark who did a really wonderful job. But, you know, immediately there were a lot more tensions because I mm. was developing it with somebody and then on the go Mm. um whereas the first short film ran really well because i had solved everything before the shoot and then it was a short shoot um i mean it was you know not to say that i like agonized over every frame of the film and had a lot of because those first five documentaries were me on screen exploring ethical and moral issues i'd have to say that it was work but it was so much more than work yeah because i was putting um, something out into the world that I took it very seriously um, and wanted my integrity to 
a priority mm-hmm. and um, and that's really hard within the pressures of a, of a TV system mm-hmm. um, and I was up for it I was game for it I didn't want to make independent feature documentaries that would maybe have a smaller audience or take longer to make I wanted to make nuanced you know sophisticated documentaries that were broadly appealing yeah. uh, and put them on television and get them in front of a lot of people yeah. I wanted them to walk this fine line between being popular and being uh, sophisticated mm-hmm. and challenging mm-hmm. um, so I was very ambitious um, and then on top of that I was on screen trying to authentically you know be honest about my thoughts about things like killing animals for food mm. um, so I don't really know where to start what was that that was like work that was existential yeah. and um, and I was definitely you know figuring out who I was and pushing my boundaries both as a person as well as in my work did it give you a sense um, coming out of that job of where uh, I guess a greater sense of where your boundaries were and where your interests were in terms of what what you wanted to do next or how you wanted to work next I think so I made the short one murder mouth and then the meat work yeah um documentary after that I had the option to do a three-part series what was meant to be a four-part series for Mm -hmm. the ABC exploring other workplaces that were polarizing or controversial Mm. or seemed to be you know problematic by some people in some way so after the meatworks I was did a series where I was a receptionist in a brothel um Mm -hmm. uh, a logger in Tasmania Mm um I worked in an abortion clinic as a cleaner and I uh also almost got to go on a customs boat which would have been turning back boat people Mm -hmm. at that stage but Tony Abbott got in and did a full media ban on anything around immigration but you know those three were hard enough so mm-hmm. I think that it was probably a good thing for me that I didn't have to do that fourth one um, but uh, you know I had this opportunity to do a three-part documentary series but I was really nervous about it because that second one had been really difficult mm-hmm. um, just working with the team under that pressure and I felt like if I'm gonna do this again on a huge scale I think I really need um, a bit more experience, a bit more support, um, you know, because coming from Adelaide, having not gone to film school, I didn't have a cohort of like really close collaborators. Mm. And I knew my standards in terms of the degree of integrity and shooting and thoughtfulness I would want to put into everything. And I knew that I would have to work, you know, triple, quadruple time on a TV schedule to make what I wanted to make within the constraints of TV. Mm-hmm. I ended up backing myself and being like, whatever holes there are, I'll be able to fill them. Mm-hmm. And I did it, even though my mentor um, and my mum both said to me, if you go in and do this again with the same kind of current support that you have, yeah. Uh, my mom said you're gonna have to move out because that was so stressful making that second one just yeah not having a really strong team um, that worked really well together and had like the same 
you know, goal. There was just a lot of tension, which can happen in early on in, um, in creative fields as people are figuring out, you know, boundaries of roles and stuff. Um, but I decided to back myself and do it, and it was super, super hard, mm-hmm. the, the series. So I think, long story short, I'm, I'm proud of the, the show. I, w- I wish it, I feel like if I had had the resources and a really wonderfully um, integrated team, they could have been, you know, even better. Um, I feel like I got them over the line, but I came out very uh, burnt out. And I am very thankful for my constitution or whatever it is that I didn't completely lose it during the process. But afterwards, I definitely uh, had to kind of rehabilitate myself because I had worked every day for like three years, pretty much. A filmmaker spoke to me a few weeks ago about an experience that they had a female filmmaker, and they were telling me about this shoot. It didn't go for that long, um, interstate somewhere, and all of the things they talked about in terms of not being listened to um, as a woman, uh, trying to clearly assert boundaries and just having those completely not seem to be registered by by kind of, um, you know, males generally Mm. um just all of these things that they talked about as a as a female director I was like this is kind of I don't know if this is validating or unsettling that it sounds so similar to the experience I had on my series Mm. because I think maybe I could have delivered this more clearly but like I was just I think I was pretty much there was a couple female assistant producers but it was kind of me and a bunch of generally older men right and um and I walked into the workplace thinking that gender didn't matter because I kind of came from a bit of an end of history um 2000s upbringing Mm -hmm. um and it really took me a long time to realize that maybe are they not listening to me because I'm a woman Mm -hmm. like I really had to learn that stuff myself Mm -hmm. uh rather than kind of come in expecting it Mm -hmm. um yeah did it was the, big. It was a big time. Yeah, I was going to say, did the, that experience, was it off-putting? Look, what I had to do after that was because I had, um, you know, taken on this very ambitious project mm. um, on a low, you know, first-timer series budget. I came out of it without really any money mm. and very exhausted. Um but I had this amazing thing to show for myself that yeah. I was proud of. But, you know, um, I, yeah, you know, it would have been so nice to just have had more energy to just put towards the project and not yeah. towards the, the difficult relationships in the workplace. Yeah. But I went and worked in film and television on other people's projects, mm-hmm. got paid a lot more, had evenings and weekends. Yeah and just kind of rehabilitated myself by working in various teams and going, oh, there isn't actually something fundamentally wrong with me. Um, I can work well with people, this is great. Mm. Um, So that was uh, kind of a uh, self-directed, you know, year of rehabilitation, um, which was really good, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Was it off-putting? I don't think it stopped me from wanting to tell stories, but it, it did make me um, just prioritize working with, prioritize the process being, um, a really positive process rather than just being outcome driven, which means working with great people, which means having the right resources to deliver it. 
Um, and, you know, having said both of my parents were really hard workers, mm. I think I was set up a little bit to not ask for enough mm. and to expect to grind myself into the ground a bit mm. because both of them work really hard. Um, they don't now. They're both getting better at, at relaxing now. They both have new partners who kind of encourage them to relax a bit more now Good. too. Um, but, um, you know, it helped me readjust uh, my expectations around how hard I should work, mm. which I still practice every day, like working a little bit less hard and discovering that the outcome's still great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a major realization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of have to keep remembering that. And that also allows you to prioritize having a great experience. Yes. And sometimes you find different answers and different results. So it allowed me to learn some lessons like that. Mm. Um, and also I, I realized I didn't want to be, I didn't particularly like being famous. Not that I was famous, but I was on television and I had a profile um, and I could already feel the, uh, the disconnection between me as a person and me as a person out in the world. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the image that's owned by those who watch it. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't really excite me. I was kind of, I, I think I'm relatively private um, and being on those projects, um, in being on screen was a tool to ask the questions I was really interested to ask. Yeah. And it was also a way to get the audience to trust me because as someone described me once, I've got a soft voice and fluffy hair and then I'll take them somewhere really confronting and make them... <laughs> question something love that so that you know that was really um it played a real role mm. in those projects um also hosted documentaries less popular now which i think is kind of great um but yeah there's a show in the u.s that i'm working on um getting up mm. with a co-creator over there right now and um for me that's been a really nice full circle of this is it's around mental health, mm -hmm. it's around suicide prevention, mm -hmm. um, but because it's such a sensitive topic that's going to be dealing with sensitive issues and sensitive people like the series that I did, mm. you know, I was speaking to women who were getting an abortion that day, mm. I was speaking to sex workers who sometimes are very empowered, sometimes are not, yeah. um, and you know, meat workers and uh, loggers are communities who feel very um, like they don't have a voice yeah. and like they are demonized all the time. So, you know, there were kind of these people's stories that I was caretaker of mm. with this series in the US. I feel like my role there is making sure that the team around it um, and the resources it, have, it has are enough that it can be done in a really wonderful way. Mm. Um, that not only is the outcome good, but the process is really wonderful. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, a decade on, I get to kind of apply the lessons I learned from that series mm. to this project mm -hmm. and go, my role is just to really be like a bit of a caretaker yeah. and be very aware of the pressures between, you know, being commercial mm. and capturing eyes and being sensationalist, mm -hmm. which TV must do, you know, you have to get viewers mm -hmm. uh, versus handling people's stories with, um, you know, just respect and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, coming 
I guess you sort of, you sort of referred to it as being a year where you sort of worked on other people's projects. Mm. When did you start to move back towards kind of being, I guess, in control of a project? Yeah, so 2016, I worked as a field producer, a contributing writer, mm. a uh, I don't know, editor, um, shooter producer on projects. Um, and then 2017, I got a job as a director of a comedy documentary kind of hybrid series mm. called Corey White's Roadmap to Paradise mm. with a comedian at the front. And it was very much Corey's voice and Corey's show. Mm. So he had, you know, co-writers working with him as well because he had done a lot of stand-up but not done a TV show. Mm. Um, being the director of that and then off the back of that directing The Net, that was kind of eight months straight of stepping much more into leading a project as a director but I mean the net so it's written by Hannah it's like her show but it was my job to help Corey's voice and Hannah's voice reach the audience with as much clarity um, and purity as possible mm -hmm. whilst bringing my skills as a director and storyteller to it mm -hmm. and I loved doing that because you know on my shows I have been on screen and directing and I've been bringing my voice to people and I've been trying to analyze myself and um and having slight split personality uh disorder as a result yeah um on, not split personality but having to be very present in the moment on screen and then very um you know at a distance looking at the broad picture as a director mm. and jumping between the two was pretty wild so mm. Um, being able to do it for Corey and Hannah just felt wonderful because yeah. I was like, I these are my skills. Mm. When I landed um, on Corey White's Roadmap to Paradise, there was like 17 people or 19 or something. It was four producers, two editors, a graphics guy, art department, sound um, and camera and costume. And I was just like, oh, my unique set of skills between kind of like being able to relate to people, um, being able to make decisions, being able to have a vision and be creative, being very organized, like all of these skills are perfectly suited for this job. Mm. So I went from very small teams, like the, te the documentary series I worked on, sometimes it was just me mm. um, and part-time camera people and I sometimes operated two cameras and then did an on-camera interview on my own Wow! to being a director with like you know a team and everyone said oh my god this is such a skeleton crew and I was like this is luxurious <laughs> so I keep going to do something and there's someone there to do it for me so Perfect. I'm just gonna focus on this and then I'm gonna go home that's great <laughs> so um yeah so I really enjoyed that role of directing Corey's show it was um Corey's a comedian he came through the foster care system some of the uh, episodes were quite personal and quite difficult. One was around domestic violence and he talked about his parents. One was around foster care. Others were just like all laughs. One was about capitalism. One was about the environment, which was really like offbeat. We had so much fun. It was like each of them was kind of a short film with mm -hmm. its own tone because mm -hmm. they were all very tonally different. Yeah. And, um, and I got to play with... Um, costume, light, lenses, rhythm, movement, in a way that in the documentaries I've been doing it had been very difficult access. Right. So it was just like capture the story that's there. Whereas on Corey's show, which was largely scripted really, um, 
I got to use all of the tools of film that I'd fallen in love with mm-hmm. when I decided to, you know, take that high risk thing and follow film. I yeah. got to use, you know, music. Um, so it was a real, um, yeah, it didn't dissuade me completely, but I knew I needed to prioritise, yeah, working in big teams with great people where there's more support and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so what what followed after Nanette, which I think is the last thing that you've gotten up to? Yeah. So uh, that's when I've probably shifted back into developing my own stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, I just wanted to talk briefly about volunteering, though. Oh, yeah. I'm not being chronological at all. That's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, when I left high school, mm. I volunteered a lot. So just on that whole kind of like your approach to work mm. slash approach to life in general, um, I've kind of had to rehabilitate, I keep using that word, I've had to kind of, um, I started out volunteering for the Refugee Association for uh, an organisation where I was a buddy to a young woman who was on the spectrum and had you know some learning difficulties, I was her buddy. Um, and then I was doing like planting, um, I volunteered for, like I can't even remember, but I would like drive around between uni, volunteering, socialising, working and film projects and like fall asleep in the car and like a nap between like before going into like do the homework clubs. So I just, I don't know where that fits in the story now. But I think it's just saying that I think for me, work has always been very forefront. Mm. Um, and uh, that I've slowly made more time for myself mm-hmm. and for my relationships over time. Mm. Um, but the fact that volunteering, which isn't technically work, was like so present for me, um, I think just my work particularly starting in documentary was often not about obviously it was about me but I at least on some level really felt like I was doing it for other people sure you know and that's probably shifted a bit too Mm -hmm. I though I do struggle to work on projects that don't feel like they have some meaning yeah yeah so after the net exploded um which I just want to like give credit to Hannah. That was a really beautiful project to work on. Mm. She was writing that show every day. And I saw like the three warm ups before the show on the Saturday, as Mm. well as I'd seen maybe three or four versions of the show over a year prior Mm. to that. And they'd all been different. She was evolving the show on stage, working out what she thought and felt and um, what was working for the audience. And she, um, Before we filmed on a Saturday, she did three warm-ups on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I went to all three because I was there to get a sense of the rhythm of the show because we're capturing it live and that's my job. And um, from Tuesday to Wednesday, it was like 60% different. And then from Wednesday to Thursday, it was, you know, 40% different. Both nights are even reordered. And on on the Thursday, there was a new ending. And then Saturday, it was a different show again. Wow. So I just would like to say that like in the workplace it's so amazing to work for someone who's working that hard you know she was really 
giving her all and, and that's why I think it um, I think it did so well. Yeah. Um, and it was a real pleasure to work on that because for me that was a really like constrained space. It was a live show on stage, very different to like, you know, running around the forest or, you know, a big kind of scripted thing. Yeah. Um, and the um but within that limited space, it was about trying to capture the energy of what she was doing. And I found that a really interesting, um, yeah, endeavour. Mm. Very much enjoyed it. It was quite creative and, and had different challenges within mm. those boundaries. Mm. Um, yeah, so since then, I have uh, been back and forth to the US a lot. Mm -hmm. Switched into kind of understanding the new horizons that I had so I don't tend to get heaps of imposter syndrome but I did get it really badly when I was in New York and I'd just gone up to Montreal to visit a friend and I'd also seen Hannah's last show of Nanette and she was just like oh so like relaxed because it'd been two years of performing that show straight and wow. she was just like, all with breaks but it was mm. a long time and a lot of emotional energy and then I come back to New York and I'd met somebody um, who was working with Hannah in Montreal and they emailed me and they introduced me to a bunch of their friends mm -hmm. who were all working in, in film and television. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of thought, oh my God, all these doors are opening, my horizons just completely expanded. Um, and it was exciting. And then I think the next day I just had this like crash mm. and I was like, I think this is imposter syndrome. Which, in that context, it's Hannah's show. Mm. Maybe it makes a bit more sense to be like, why am I getting, you know, these opportunities off the back of her very personal, you know, reveal to the world. Yeah. So I think that makes sense. Um, but I think it's also just, yeah, I have, um, I think I've had degrees of it, but I have so much sympathy for people who struggle with imposter syndrome because, like, that was a really rough day. Um, and then, um, and then the next, uh, yeah, the next thing I kind of did was really get to understand America, mm. met lots of people, um, tried to really, I think I made it a bit of a mission to understand the way that industry works. Mm. What are the cultural differences with Australia and the US? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I got management representation over there. And I think that's been a real journey for me because I've been so independent, so self-directed, lacking kind of support, you know, from um, just listening to some of your other podcasts. People have talked about um, sometimes the support of parents. Mm. And my parents are very supportive, but I am the third of four kids and the one who tended to, I think, fit into the role of taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so... Having management like call me and check up on stuff, like it's freaking me out. It's like, <laughs> what, you know, how's your script coming along? I'm just like, ah, it's coming. Ah. So all the cliches about management that I've like seen in film and TV shows make a lot of sense to me right, now. Yeah. And I just couldn't figure out this relationship in my life. I think being very independent. So I've I've, I've managed to to get to a point with it, but it took me quite a while mm -hmm. to figure out how to work with these people. Um. And, yeah, and look, off the back of Nanette, I had a lot of options. Um, 
and I think I spent a little bit of time. I had a period where I was saying yes to too much, mm. so I was quite spread. And then since then, I've been like narrowing and narrowing, and um, and honing in on a few projects. And now I have a slate. It's still a fairly big slate, but it's much smaller than it was. And all the projects on it are ones that I feel really like I feel that energy that I felt about my first documentaries nice. you know and that's a while since I felt that way mm-hmm. but I also after I finished that five years of making those five or six documentaries um and there was a small one as well that I made um I after that first period I knew that I had like put everything out like I knew I had to do some living to have something to say again mm-hmm. um and so yeah a lot has happened since uh 2015 when I finished making that documentary series mm. um a lot's happened in my family and my personal life um a lot's happened in the world and I feel like now I have something to say again yes yeah um and not only in terms of like content but in terms of tone and perspective yeah. you know um mm-hmm. some things have settled and yeah um you know i have a partner who lives interstate and uh that's been unsettling and then as i've managed to kind of like make good decisions in my personal life that feeds very much into having the stability to take big risks in my professional work if that makes sense it does yeah Yeah. um i know that this is a very laden question right now for everybody Um, But do you have a sense, even just broadly speaking, of what you'd like to do next or what direction you'd like to move in next? No, I do. I I love documentary and scripted. Yeah. But um, I am very keen to work with teams of people and tell stories in the scripted space because of, I think, both the process and the outcome. Mm -hmm. Also because it allows me to grow and and challenge myself in in the field yeah. in the documentary space um, you know the project I'm working on in the US makes sense because there's growth there it'll be on a much bigger scale and it also just has it just deserves to exist you know that show is a really exciting show mm. um, but uh, yeah I want to direct a, um, there's two feature films that I want to make yep and I'm attached to two series, both of which I'm really passionate about. So I want to work with those people on those projects. Mm. Yeah. Um, this is sort of my last and cheapest question. Um, is there anything that you feel is really important to your story that we've missed? Um, I think... I think that I found some mentors along the way but that um, I definitely tend towards risk-taking and putting myself in 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 difficult positions and I think that if I were to kind of go back I just wish I could arm myself with so many good lessons I have now and I can't (laughs) I think that something that's been really beneficial for me has been um, being able to check in with community because documentary filmmaking can be very 
lone wolf. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably true for a lot of arts, you know, whether you're a painter or a photographer or a dancer. Maybe dancers and actors have a community as a result of the work that they do. Mm. But starting out in documentary, I did find it was very easy not to have, particularly in Adelaide, not to have people I could talk to who completely knew what the particular challenges of my workplace were. Yeah. And when I found that, it felt so good. Yeah. In a way that I hadn't expected it to feel that good, just to have someone who had been through all of the same, like, you know, different tensions and challenges and, and joys, mm. you know, of your work that you can share. Yeah. So that's something that I think as a result of being in Adelaide, and being in documentary, um, I only got to discover later and really, really love. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's it. I did it. Was that super esoteric or no, was, was that perfect. some like detail? No, it was in there? really good. It was really coherent. Okay.